G'day everyone and welcome to episode 6 of series 2 of the Wide Open Road podcast where retired athletes share their stories of athlete transition to help current athletes prepare for life after sport. My guest today is former Olympic cyclist Rob Crow OAM who shares his fascinating story and a passion for transition and mental health with us. Rob is a writer, motivational speaker and director of the Mind Fitness Cycling Programs for Ridewiser in Melbourne. Ridewiser's mission is to enhance mental health through physical cycling training using a special language and framework to correlate the various levels of physical exertion with different mindsets used in everyday life. Rob went into the 1992 Barcelona Olympics in a team that was one of the favourites for the 100km cycling time trial and had to cope with the disappointment of not performing as the team would have liked. The lessons Rob took away from this disappointment helped shape his life after sport. Rob's passion for health and wellbeing comes across loud and clear during our conversation. Thank you and please enjoy today's podcast with Rob Crow, OAM. Rob Crow, it's great to see you. In your bio, you call yourself a writer, motivational speaker, Olympic cyclist and now the director of the Mind Fitness Cycling Programs for Ridewiser in Melbourne, Victoria. Now we'll get to the Ridewiser program a little later, but I want to speak to you specifically today about your journey as a professional cyclist to where you are now, especially considering cycling is an extremely time-consuming sport, especially if you're consuming upwards of a 1,000 kilometres a week in riding. That doesn't take five minutes. It takes hours and hours. So, Rob, can you talk a little bit about your journey from a professional cyclist to, if you like, a, a normal citizen? Yeah, good to, good to catch up with you, Ed. Um, I know that little list of titles that you ran off there is probably a little bit like the chronological progression from sports person in the full-time cycling world to uh, then motivational speaker, which came after a, a big flop, actually, in the Olympics in 92 in Barcelona, where I had been, like the rest of the team, training fairly flat out full-time for four years. It's quite a common thing, the Olympic campaigns, of the old, I mean, we were amateurs then. It's now professional in the cycling, but we, we trained for four years. It was a big deal at the time because Australia was just putting money into the road cycling uh, budget instead of all into the velodrome racing. That was a thing in the 80s, but a big, all the medals were coming out of the uh, track cycling. So we had this special coach that was shipped in from East Germany after the wall came down. And he was keen to prove himself and wear all the best things on the block. And we put it together, like you said, a thousand k's a week. It was amazing. It was what the, I think the biggest week we did in that few years up to '92 in Barcelona was 1,250. So, yeah, it was the, the problem with that, as you said, is it's a full-time gig just doing the cycling. So the thing was, we were ended up seated second in the world in the 100k time trial. So to then get a flat tire and come 12th out of the medals, out of the top 10, disaster. So I guess I, I did carve a motivational speaking career path there after the Olympic campaigns. In the meantime, I did try to go into the professional world for a few years and in the cycling pro life. As you mentioned, my problem with cycling at the full-time level was it was so time-consuming. You really had to – I mean, I realised this early on, but you really had to be interested in it as – Ride your bike, eat, sleep, start again. And it was just not for me. I wanted to have a bit more intellectual stimulation and a bit more career development. I left, you know, university when I was 20 to join the Olympic squad, which was then never, even from that point in 1990, it wasn't a guarantee to be part of the Olympic team. You know, you'd go from 
qualifying in the Australian racing season to get into the squad of 20. And uh, I mean, it's dog eat dog. Most sports are like that, especially with the Olympic uh, selection criteria. So you, you go from the, the squad of 20, you spend a year in that. You want to get into the top 12 and then you go international to the European racing where the big cycling races always were then. They're now here in our country too with the Tour Down Under in Adelaide is a big thing in the pro world even. But that back then all the big racing was in Europe so you had to fly over. And, uh, and then you may have got into the top six if you're good enough in the selection right up into the last few months before the Olympics. And then if you were able to either get the results on the board or be you know, inexpendable sort of member of, the, of a quartet like I was in the four-man team time trial, then that would get you into that final cut and you'd go and represent the country. So to, do, to go through all of those hoops and then get to the actual day of the Olympics in Barcelona and then have we had a flat tyre and a crash, it was a very unfortunate experience. And so a mad amount of adversity we faced on the day of the Olympic 100-kilometre time trial and that just, I just remember sitting, I mean, we did the best we could with what we had and still came 12th, which was admirable. But the funny thing I remember about it, seeing it later on the uh, recordings on Channel 7 News was, the Wild World of Sport was, uh, look at the four riders, the Australians, they're seated second in the 100-kilometre men's team time trial. And this is the highest ranking Australia's ever had in the event. And we're, here we are looking at Robert Crowe on the front and Darren Lawson, Rob McLaughlin and Grant Rice. Oh, the team, they've had a flat tyre. We'll go to the swimming. They've had a flat tyre. Looks like it's game over. <laughs> and, it, and the camera switched to the swimming, right? And that was it. Never so as with sport, you know, if, if you're not in it for the win, it's not interesting. The media will go for the gold medals, aren't they? So I, it was just a crushing reality that, wow, you know, after all that, even, oh, it was just, it was just a wake-up call. So I remember sitting in the... Australian team tent at the end of this. Uh, I mean, we're talking like 50 k's now for two hours. It's flat out. It's a serious. You, you couldn't do it without full-time training for four months minimum. We've been training for two years. Never had a flat tire. Never had a crash. Had both of them happen on the day in the 100k. Still, I mean, we still finished two hours and one minute or something. And the Italians won by, you know, a minute 50 something so it's like wow it doesn't matter you know everything can come crashing down i just sat there for a good 20 minutes staring at the white canvas in the tent thinking what was that all about for the last four years for that you know and i think this was the first emergence of the idea in my mind that there's a mental strategy that i'm going to need here to cope as the years ahead come because I'm going to be looking back at this thinking, what did I just do to myself and what did that all mean? And so then I went back into the, uh, ironically, I, I went back down from Olympic level to state level in Victoria and I captained the new Victorian Institute of Sport team, cycling team that was newly budgeted team for the sport, never been, I mean, Victorian Institute of Sport was new. A budget for road cycling was new. A decentralised program in Australia was new. You know, it was it always been Australian Sports Commission, Canberra Sports Institute, the AIS. And so now there was this new thing with um, state bodies. And I immediately became more interested in being a role model athlete to other athletes, dealing with athletes in transition. But imagine, I mean, even in a bike race, out of 200 riders, one guy wins and 199 other riders are losers, crudely speaking. In sport, it's very much like that. These people, they, 
they train and train all these years and go to the Olympics and some of them win a medal and some of them, a lot of them don't. And some of them who even win the medal don't cope well with the success of it or they win the wrong coloured medal or they get right up until the last week or days before their event and something goes wrong like a broken leg or a funeral for the family or whatever it is and there's this enormous amount of mental strain going on in the background with Olympics, for just to use that as the topic of this discussion. But, I mean, it's in sport generally, but the Olympics is quite a good example for this sort of cliff-edge experience for a lot of people. And I remember coming back from the Olympic campaign and it was literally like getting off the aeroplane and the uh, the officials from the, from the Australian team were like, well, good on you guys, well done for your efforts to represent Australia and good luck with the next four years and if you do well we might see you again in four years time bye and there was this literally this what's called actually in psychology a post-olympic cliff which is this sudden drop off of everything just stopping I mean Rob how did you cope with that because I mean I think that that's a fascinating story about training preparing being one of the favorites for the race and then having having an issue which let's face it stuffed things up and mm, things go wrong yeah. and, and things do go wrong in most sports you've got next week or you've got next uh, the next season in the olympic sports you've got once every four years and i know you know shane kelly well and we all know the tragedy that was yeah. shane, shane's event i think in 96 when his feet came out of the pedals at, at the start of a at the sprint race and so i mean That's how, right. do, you, how uh, do you cope yeah. with that from the perspective of just being able to get back on the horse so to speak after you've had that happen to you? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, the, the initial experience is shocking and the coping mechanisms to get through that shock are different to what you then produce, I guess, or develop in your, in your mind in the months and years ahead, which is uh, something else to do with refocusing to the intrinsic joy of what you're doing rather than the event outcome. I guess I like that philosophy anyway, my whole business approach is that, that it's about the journey not about the end result and that that happens i notice that happens a lot in life across all disciplines like you know a lot of people do say it's, it was more fun building the house and designing the house than actually walking in the door for the first time and living in it. it's like oh the joy's finished now it just it's here and it's a bit like that and, and i mean shane might disagree with me there but i'm pretty sure for shane he would agree with me on the point that you know you get his event highlights it even more than mine my story because of it's a one minute, a single minute in time after literally four years again of training. And if something goes wrong, as it did for Shane, a little bit, that's that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. He went through a similar letdown of just things that can go wrong, going wrong and ruining the experience or ruining the opportunity to win. But he, his focus is on building his body, developing himself to be good at the one minute time trial sprint. And so... You do kind of go back to what you said. You go back to there being another, there'll be another time and that you've just got to live life, like be a bit mature about the fact that the Olympics is a nastily uh, tall peak, a high peak to go to. If that's all you're really building for is that single minute in four years, then that, that would be too risky. So you start to do what people, I suppose, in, uh, in investment portfolios do and spread the risk. You start to you know, get focused on a number of areas of where you can put your efforts and you don't put too much pressure on yourself for the one minute. And this is what happens with good... I have a great philosophy that I call the life balance wheel, which is basically the, the spokes of a wheel being the uh, the tensions of your 
of your lifestyle being spread across in a spoke wheel. You know, these days there's only 28 spokes. There used to be 36 spokes, but different pieces of your life that you put, you invest into rather than being all invested in this one single thing, which for me was a two-hour event that didn't work out. And I guess I got a real wake-up call and thought, wow, it's too risky to do that. And, and, the, and the initial shock was I just quit the sport. I just got off the bike. I literally put the bike in the shed when I got back to Melbourne and didn't do any cycling for six months, I think it was. And interestingly, you know, six months after that, a year later, I was back having recovered mentally and, and, and would have had a very good physical break then. <laughs> Not to, Going from 1,200 k's a week to nothing is quite a – that's another cliff. That you, that's hard on the physical body, actually, to do that. And I won't do that again. But, yeah, I, I got a more balanced outlook. Rob, what do you think about this whole issue of balance? I mean, we spend – in all the conversations I've had in this podcast and my listeners – who tune in every fortnight understand this is that there is this massive tension at times between balance and and you know Ed Cowan who I spoke with a couple of weeks ago speaks about he doesn't call it a balance he calls it a blend where if when his cricket was really taking off other things may have taken a back seat if he got injured or had a couple of weeks off suddenly the things that were outside of the cricket world sort of rise to the surface again so he was talking mm. about a blend. David Parkin, who I mention in this podcast a lot, is an AFL mm. coach who was very, very keen on his players having other things in their lives to ensure that they're not, to your point, just putting all their eggs in the one basket and having just this one singular focus, which clearly it works for some people, but it can be very destructive for others. So as a, as a former athlete who just chucked everything at that two-hour, once-every-four-year cycle... What do you mm. think about this whole issue of balance and getting balance right between the sporting side of things and then the bigger picture of life? Yeah, well, it's a, I mean, it was a big deal in the 90s, in the early 90s, because, as you just put it, you know, the temptation for young people and up-and-comers into sport especially is to put all their eggs in that one. And they, and, you, and there's, it's so competitive, you kind of have to. It's It's... It's hard not to put all your energy into that one area so that you can achieve at it and get to the summit. But the, the, there was a big change that happened around the time that I went to the Olympics in 92, which was that the Australian Sports Commission didn't require the cyclists, that I can speak for that discipline, that to have other vocational interests or investments in other areas of their lives. They were quite happy to take the athletes who succeeded in qualifying scholarship them into the program for a two-year build-up to a summit, if you like, for the Olympic campaigns. Uh, there was no real support network, not a good one, for counselling or what I now would hugely recommend any program doing such a thing with people to, to offer a counselling backup program or a post, especially a post-event follow-up style plan. This all did come into play in 1993 to my delight, because I was right in the hot seat of suffering through the transition out of Olympic, uh, off that post-Olympic cliff, um, and the VIS program attended it. So when you say, what do I think about the balance? I think that's where my life balance wheel concept came from in my own work. For, I mean, I went and worked as a counsellor years after a psych degree with the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games, specifically with athletes, what we call transition counselling but it could be athletes that missed out on their event 
selection. It could be athletes that went to the games and missed out on the medal that they were hailed to win. It could be athletes that got a medal but got the wrong medal. It could be athletes that came home and weren't happy even though they won like, because the rest of their life is in tatters. This is There's many possible outcomes. But I think what we realised around those years was that you might see someone that seems expert at delivering all their attention into their one discipline and think that they're off balance and one or single-minded and one-track-minded, but in fact they have a very good development of their life investments in other areas, which is this, I come back to this idea of the spokes. And, you know, several of their spokes in their wheel are devoted to their sporting discipline, whether it's their nutritional life and their training routines and their uh, sport network people that they draw from. I mean, you can even spread out your support within the sport arena itself, but they also have maintained good relationships in their personal life. They've got good family ties and they've they've selected their friends carefully, but people who are good for them and lift them and are complementary to their life. And they've done the work. And, you, you know, you don't see this until you start digging down with someone and finding out, how they've built their sporting life world. So the problem with me personally was I hadn't, I'd slipped into, inadvertently slipped into devoting all my attention to just the cycling. And the program didn't help because it didn't require us to sign off on having a, a vocational interest or a job. Whereas I remember the rowing team in 91 at Canberra had, I mean, the rowing sport itself, their program had, I think they had a three-hour training session in the morning before 9am. Then the members could go to school or work or studies, you know, uh, correspondence studies, whatever, in in the Australian Sports Commission library. And then they had a post-working day session on the water rowing as well or in the gym. So that was designed – I remember thinking, gee, that would be good. I'd like that because I'd have all my time in the cycling but also be able to devote some of my day – to my development as in a career path or a qualification or or an income, even just putting my mind onto developing other skills in a job. So that did come in in 93, very big in Victoria, and then it spread all over Australia. It became a requirement. You're not even allowed to sign a sports contract in the Australian Sports Commission unless you have these things in play. And some very good programs came along within the cycling community that required it of the athletes in pro teams and developing pro teams, that the riders were not allowed to sign a pro contract and earn money with their racing unless they had another avenue of investment going on with an employment-based thing. And I ended up with this myself years later in a team for an Australian sports insurance company named Sports Cover. And I had I was, you know, I was basically a, a sales rep for sports insurance and I was captain of the cycling team and we would travel to the events. So it just was, a, as you said, you know, how, how do you package this? You know, whether, how do you create the balance? And these days in sport, it's much more common. I mean, we see people doing that in, their, in, in a timetabling sense, but I'm very interested in how people are actually managing that in a mental health sense, as in are they in fact keeping their investments in the mental health focus sense spread across different styles of thinking. I fell down because I think I was, and my coach used to make jokes at me even about it, so it was showing up even in his view of me. He used to say, Mr Crow, Mr Crow, you're either going 100 miles an hour or lying down, (laughs) which is not healthy. It's not a healthy uh, 
way to be. And I was all gung ho while I was exhausted from being gung ho all the time and just missing a day of training and lying down. So, I mean, that's a good example just in itself to look at that spread of disciplines. And I, I even invented a a framework that I use in my cycling training school and then I'm translating that into a mental health model, a framework, which is basically the different levels of exertion from endurance at the bottom up to explosive power at the top, the six levels, and the different levels correlate with different mindsets. So I think even in that crude sense, I'm seeing, looking back at my life and seeing how I did eventually by force from suffering and from crashing mentally and from crashing in the, uh, as you were talking earlier about things going wrong and things go wrong and the post-Olympic cliff and the uh, too much investment in one area of life and then the horrible rocky road that comes along when you suddenly realise that that area of life isn't working anymore and you need to draw on something else and you haven't got it ready. And I even think in this coronavirus pandemic that we're going through, a lot of people are experiencing this in normal life because all of a sudden things that they've been relying on that are always there, like a job or a lifestyle that supports them, suddenly gets taken away and everyone's feeling a bit like, oh, I need a bit better sort of, I need to be more robust, I need to be better balanced with where I draw my personal strengths or my personal uh, enjoyment from life from to be able to get through this tough time. And it's a very similar I'm just seeing that as a very similar model for how how life can do that to you know. Well, look, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think it's really topical this conversation around the mental health side, Rob, because there is no doubt that people are struggling in in Victoria at the moment because you know most of us aren't allowed to do the things that we'd like to do, uh, and that's that's a shock. I, I yeah, think yeah, that is a shock, and and I think I really love that that description of the post Olympic cliff because I imagine every Olympic athlete would have some sort of downer regardless of whether they won the damn race or won the event that they were competing in or or didn't. Mm. There would be that sort of cliff that you come because you're no longer training, you're no longer having a goal and, and most athletes, and you've no doubt experienced this, are very good at setting goals. It might be, well, look, I want to make the state team, I want to make the Australian team, I want to go to the Olympics, I want to win a, a medal, I mm. want to, all those sorts of things. And one thing that you you mentioned is about this the issue of mental health. And the one thing which always fascinates me, especially about the Olympic sports, is this issue of mental health, sacrifice and enjoyment. Did you ever get to the stage in your career where the enjoyment of the monotony, if you like, of day in, day out training and and, and practice and competing became a chore, which then suddenly made it, there's your dog, now you promised uh, me the dog. You, you promised me the dog wouldn't bark, but listeners, that's okay. It's a very friendly dog. And the thing that I'm interested in talking about is this issue of the mental health side of things and the enjoyment of doing the activities that you're involved in. In this case, for your instance, cycling. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, it was. Do you want me to cut that out? That noise. Do you want the, me to go and stop that? What's the dog's name? Is it not coming? Milo. Milo's going to be a star on this podcast, so don't worry about that. Milo, can, here. Actually, there's a great article that just got released by Stonington News where they couldn't resist putting him in the photo, but it was all meant to be about me, but they made it about the dog. <laughs> man's, uh, man's best friend. I'll just give him a cuddle. No, that's a great um, – it was massive, Ed. I, you were saying about the experience of losing uh, the oh, joy. Well, 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 let, let, me, let me rephrase it, Rob. As your experience in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics where you had the flat tyre and instead of maybe podium finishing, you finished outside the top ten – did that in all way diminish your experience as an Olympian? Oh, yeah. Like, well, because I was, as I learned later, 
I was too focused on the outcome. This is this, um, you know, the irony of my business name is it's um, it's not even about cycling. It's a counselling business name that I've used in the cycling realm, but it's ride the journey of your life more wisely. And one of the key tenets of that is really not being too focused on the outcome. But I was very focused on the outcome. So what happened for me was uh, I got caught up in the, you know, the big investment of four years and hoping to see that result. We, we were pushed pretty hard. We all had high hopes. The coach was very focused on it because he wanted to prove himself as well. And we kind of got to expecting we would meddle. So that's risky in itself. But um, I, long time before, ironically, and this is an inside story because I haven't talked about this before, but for a long time, and the team members would agree with me, the other guys in my team would agree, for two months, three months maybe before the Olympics, we had lost morale. And it was just a very difficult program to do. We were, some of us were first-timers in the European continent racing scene. It had been for a good six months altogether in one run without a break and it was game over for some of us. I was concerned mentally actually leading up and I actually expressed concerns with the coach about it and he expressed concerns with me and said, what do you think is wrong with the team? I said, I think they're low on morale. How do you fix that? I said, well, I said, well, they need a rest. They need to go and have time out, do other things and have a, maybe have a little holiday without cycling for, oh, no, we can't do that. Uh, we're too close to the Olympics. You know, so it's a, it's a very dicey edge, knife edge to be on. And I do remember the famous saying in the sport has been bantered around by a lot more people than, than just me, but it's that, uh, you know, you've got to enjoy riding without a number on your back. And it's because that, that is, it highlights the focus of what is it really about that you're doing. And sure, when you're good at it, and that, when I was older, I enjoyed it a lot more. I can attest to that. When you get good at cycling, racing, I realise that it's because even though there's a number on my back years later, I'm not actually in this race just to win it. I'm actually enjoying the intrinsic, pure joy of my legs going around in circles. And, it, and I got tuned to that in that Olympic campaign, that two-year overseas campaign, that when, when you stop enjoying that intrinsic element of it, it's risky. You've got to watch out because a lot of these things you're doing, uh, high discipline, high focus, time pressure, energy pressure of the body, the energy expenditure each day is right to the limits and you've got to have that behind you. So a lot of young people come to me and say, you know, I want to really be good and we go through a training plan or a set of advice about how they're going to set their week up and I finish every time because of this with, now look, that's all great. Well, you do that right and those days and everything, you, you're trying to hit 100% of the, of the targets, but it's about enjoying it as well. If you stop enjoying it, you can forget this plan because it'll all go to pieces. So you make some decisions along the way about the happiness. Don't go too far and start compromising the joy factor. So and a, a good example of that is, um, you know, with, with good cycling training is a lot of it you need to do solo. Uh, because you, you don't want someone competing with you along the road all the time. You need to follow your own body a bit more and and you have to have the discipline to do the distance and everyone else might distract you from getting things finished. So there is a lot of solo time with it, but sometimes you've got to watch out. You're not getting too flat and all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, this kind of thing. And you join the bunch ride that isn't as good structurally in the training and it's not as close to the pattern that you're meant to follow for that day 
but it's social and it's fun and it's silly and you don't take it that seriously, And but that's the joy coming back in. And this happens a lot in cycling. So I'm sort of very focused on keeping that alive all the time and consequently I don't do the same kind of riding anymore. In my cycling life, I do what we refer to as challenge rides, which is going with other people around hilly road courses in the mountains against the clock a little bit more like these big events you've probably heard of around Australia called fundraisers or challenge rides where mass start events. It's not so much about pinning the number on and winning the prize money. It's more about putting your body through the challenge and seeing how well you can go. It's just better healthy, mentally healthier thing to do, I reckon. We're going to get a little bit more into the mental health in a second because I think you know, you've know you got a psychology degree and you're, you've always had a vision for psychology, for health and fitness when it comes to the mental side of things. But being a hack cyclist, and I know there's plenty of people <laughs> who, who aren't Olympic cyclists who listen to this podcast and oh, good. They're, out, they're out there you know, dressed in their lycra doing what they do on the weekends and the like. Can you give me a description or give the listening audience a, des- a description of how a individual who has probably ridden hundreds of thousands of kilometres competing and training over a 20-year period or more, how do you cope with riding in a peloton down Beach Road in Melbourne with, oh, yeah. with a whole group of riders who you, you don't know? Who yeah, who are yeah. who are buzzing along at maybe thirty five or forty kilometres an hour, thinking they're pretty good, and worrying about one bloke taking the whole of you down because yeah, I, I've yeah. I've seen it happen. I haven't fortunately had had the crash itself, but I've certainly seen them happen. And and the screaming and the sound of the body hitting the road is something that I really don't uh, ever want to go through. Talk yeah, to me about yeah. that for a second. You know about it. Wow. There's so many things pop into my mind when you say that. It is, it's a thing. What you're talking about is a thing. To start the answer off, I need to say there's been a change in the culture, several changes in the last 20, 30 years in the bunch ride, let's call it the bunch riding culture of Melbourne. I mean, it's a big story from beginning to end, but it's um, it went from, I mean, when I started the sport in the late 80s, the, the only people wearing Lycra with bike shoes that click in riding close together, like within a metre apart of each other, were groups of between four and 12 maybe, and that's it, all registered racing cyclists. So we didn't have to worry. So we knew everyone in the group. If a foreigner joined in, he was immediately relegated to the back for obvious reasons because you've got to learn the etiquette. We don't want to be at risk because you don't know how to handle your bike properly. So that was a very regimented <laughs> situation in comparison to roll forward 15 years, you know, mid-2000s, 2005 and six. the bunches were up over 200 riders strong Good on Lord. the big ones, from Black Rock to Mount Eliza and back on the Hellrise, 240 riders. On the summer of 2003, actually, we got the peak count and Bicycle Victoria was worried about developing the bike tracks along the beach there and the, because the numbers of riders on the road <laughs> were bigger than the number of cyclists using the bike tracks. So there's quite a lot of big evolving things going on in that realm of bunch riding. But the famous sayings from the riders that did come back from the professional world into the local scene and, as you say, their fear of joining a bunch of the everyday warrior, we would call that, that are quite capable of riding 50Ks an hour for two hours as well, 
in straight lines, mind you. As soon as there's a corner, there's all chaos. But <laughs> in straight lines down the front, and everyone can do that. So we would say you either got to be on the front or off the back. You're either on the front pulling at 50 k's an hour, literally 50 plus. You don't want to drop it under 50 because then you're making route. You're giving lesser riders a chance to come up and mingle in the arrowhead. So literally, that's what we would do. We would go in the bunch ride, move to the front, and put the pressure on, just like a pro tour in Europe. Put the pressure on hard enough, and that's usually around 48 plus k's now, to force everyone into the slipstreams and go to get them back to get the risk down. Put the riders behind, and if you were going to peel off and not spend time in that front 15 riders, you would go to the back and rest, but not even sit in what we call the comet trail, which is the back of a peloton of riders where there's people sort of mixing and coming and going and thinking they're going to drop off but maybe I can hang on and they've usually got their heads down they're struggling they're trying to keep up that's a very dangerous place to be so we would drop off the comet trail and literally be 10 or 15 meters behind the last riders of the bunch out of danger so you're either on the front or off the back of the comet trail and that was how we would do it but um that was in the era that became what we now know as the recreational boom in Australia and as that happened, the mecca of bunch cycling in the world moved from the canals of Belgium in Ghent to Beach Road, Melbourne. And it is still, until the virus hit us, it is still being well known all over the cycling world. The mecca of bunch cycling, recreational bunch cycling, is Beach Road, Melbourne, Australia. Well, I know. So you've got to know what you're doing. Yeah, you've oh, got to know. Oh, God, it. I tell you. They are living. They are living organisms. These those beasts of those bunches. Having having seen Regular them, and, fifty rider bunches every thirty seconds passing uh, one point. I know it's crazy. Absolutely, it's absolutely scary. The, the the thing that is really fascinating about your story, Rob, is you've got a real passion for transition, and you've got a real passion for mental health, and using the Ridewise and Mind Fitness Cycling Program as a way to help people stay what I call mentally agile. Can you talk to oh, us? Yeah, cool. Can you talk to us a little bit about your interest in the whole issue of transition and where that passion comes from? Well, I used to say in my presentations and motivational presentations that when I was younger in the sport, I used to use the analogy of James Bond, the character in the 007 films, as my role model because uh, style of thinking because. If you've ever seen a James Bond film, it's almost ridiculous how many different skills he's got. He'd jump in a helicopter, just scoot <laughs> off down the road in a race, in a, you know, a race car and be able to do a full 180 in it and drive it so competently. Then he's good with the weapons and he's good with the hand combat and then he's good with the women and then he's good with... And this is this sort of all-rounder approach. And I realised that in cycling, my journey through cycling was to find out that if you want to be competitive in the road cycling world, you can't be few riders uh, able to make it to the top by being just good in one discipline with road cycling. You've really got to be able to climb, time trial, sprint, you know, do long distance. To, it's You've got to be sort of broad skills, which I love that about this. It's very stimulating sport in that way. And I think I applied that principle to life. And I thought, well, I don't want it, uh, you know, in the end, it actually ruled me out of the sport altogether because I didn't want to just be a cyclist. I wanted to have some qualification. I want to have some vocational area. I want to be mentally stimulated, physically healthy. 
So that's where I think it was born. Ironically, it was born through the cycling sport itself, but ultimately it wound me out of professional cycling. And a lot of people had a go at me at the time in uh, in the mid nineties when I'd stepped off and went back to school because I had great pedigree. In their words, I could have been anything if I wanted to commit to another five years. It was said to me a few times: if you just spend five more years, you'll be in the Tour de France, earning the big bucks, racing professionally for a big team and you know and I just was having a lot of trouble with that because the lifestyle itself meant eat sleep ride your bike it was just a very narrow sort of focus so I took that broadness I got very interested in uh, becoming more as you put very well mentally agile mentally able to cope with different types of thinking where you could be more I was over analytical I didn't want to be all analytical I wanted to be more creative and I tried to make that transition out of the professional sporting life back to university and uh, I had trouble with that because, if, as you can imagine, if you go from riding your bicycle six, five, six hours a day to sitting in a lecture theatre, your physiological body goes a little bit crazy because there's been so much high metabolism and turnover and, I mean, people talk about athletes needing to adjust their diet, which is a big, it is a big deal. You put on weight if you don't stop eating or you know what happens is people reduce the amount of exercise by a long way and then keep eating the same amount of food to get fat so there's that change but I was experiencing a much bigger problem with changing my mind's uh, calmness if you like from having this very intense stimulation all the time riding along for five hours plus a day and then suddenly riding for maybe one hour a day and sitting in four or five hours of uni lectures and thinking with my brain. So I actually turned to meditation at the time. At the peak of that problematic time in 1996, I'd started meditating. And this gave me a very interesting insight into what's really going on in the mind. Like what I was able to do, in a sense, was replicate the what you referred to a bit earlier as the monotony of cycling. I, if you're going to do 1,200 k's a week, you're going to be spending a lot of those 1,200 k's just riding along. It's even got a, an acronym. <laughs> JRA is a very well-known thing in cycling. Just ride along. So, Rob, before we had the technical difficulties, just uh, just with respect to my recorder blowing up there for a second, you were speaking about your James Bond 007 role model rule, <laughs> which is all about the all-rounder approach. So can you well, it's just a, <laughs> talk a little bit more yeah, about that and, and, and the, the whole issue of JRA, which is the uh, cycling and acronym for just ride along, and, and that's obviously oh, that's right. clearly Good. important when it comes to what I like to describe as people's mental agility. And the one other thing which I thought was interesting that you mentioned before, which is about this issue of morale and being in Europe for a two-year kind of stretch in the lead up to the 92 Olympics is that I interviewed Bridie O'Donnell who I'm sure you know over the course of the last podcast series and Bridie's book is a fascinating read because it talks about just how tough mentally riding in Europe day in day out is for whether it's a male or a female cyclist. Oh yeah good Bridie yeah she would have gone through the same sort of realizations I imagine that you need to be broad enough to cope with the uh, narrowness of the activity of road cycling and because it's a lot of one discipline. And I, I just remember, I was remembering when I was younger that my realisation that in the sport of road cycling, you can't really be good at it unless you're quite skilled across a lot of areas. So even within the road cycling sport itself, there was this array of, or, you know, you had to have multiple feathers in your hat 
and be skilled. So in road cycling, you have to be a decent climber. You know, have to have a bit of a sprint on you if you ever got to a finish in a breakaway group. You have to be good at endurance to cope with the long distances and at 200 plus stages, day after day tours. And I, you know, I wasn't a big fan of that, but you had to get through the tours to get to the one day events. And so I was a one day specialist. But and then you had to, be, on top of all of that, you wanted to be good against the clock with no one else in the bunch and just you and the clock. So I just likened it at the time to the James Bond 007 character who seems to be just good at whatever he puts his hand to, whether it's a, a speed boat or a helicopter or a hand-to-hand combat or a different weapon that he just picks up off the ground, he's got it all. So I was thinking, this, I like that broadness. And in fact, the broadness interest that I came to be more fond of than the cycling professional sport itself it ended up taking me out of the my cycling career altogether as a pro sports person because I just it was too narrow as a thing to just be riding all day. So this um, it just reminded me when I was talking about that going forward into the other parts of my life where I took the model of cycling fitness, which was largely taught to me by Heiko Salzwedel, the German coach. The levels there's 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 a sequence of levels from endurance up to explosive power that that makes this a pyramid of fitness abilities, if you like. Or, and I've likened that to your your word for mental health being, you know, more mentally agile. The idea in fitness is that you and in road cycling is that you have a you have skills in a multitude of the different modes, and you need that in fitness. You need endurance, you need strength, you need speed, you need explosive power. Especially in road cycling, you need the whole stack. That, to me, suggests that when you're looking to transition to life after sport, having the ability to move skills and take the skills of what you've learnt through a lifetime of cycling into the non-sporting world, and, and you know whether you're a carpenter, a doctor, a plumber, mm. any type of job, I mean, and, and having spoken earlier about your passion for transition – Let's talk a little bit about the transferability of skills that you've seen successfully being transferred from the sporting realm into the into what I'd call, you know, normal citizens who are going normal, about their yeah. daily jobs. Because the job of a professional cyclist or a professional sports person, whilst it's professional and they're being, you know the people are being paid to do it, it's a very different line of work to an accountant or a doctor or a plumber or a carpenter. But I wouldn't be surprised, Ed, if what I'm finding more and more and using my framework I was talking about with the, um, you know, thinking of it as a pyramid where the bigger volume, and you referred to before JRA, which is the acronym for Just Right Along, which is endurance training, which is a colloquialism for doing your endurance. You know, it's the one thing that a lot of the local bunch rider weekend warriors would neglect. It's very common not to do enough endurance, not to do enough of the everyday basic healthy cycling low speed volume this is something that's very clear in the fitness development of the cyclist and i think that's one thing like that the structure is what i've taken across from the sport into normal life and i my structured normal life has calm relaxed thinking for a big proportion of the week built in which is the same as the jra or endurance cycling volume that was done in the week of a cyclist. These 1,200Ks a week was largely made up of endurance and then some strength work, a little bit less, but speed work, even less again, but sprinting work that day, and it's proportionately put together. So 
I think I was becoming very aware of that in my first year out of the professional sport and I had problems with the psyche with having done so much exercising and then suddenly trying to do normal life which is maybe one hour of the day is exercise and five or six hours of the day all of a sudden in reverse is sitting and thinking and studying or doing something that's non-physical so it's quite difficult to i had a lot of trouble with that and, and what, uh, what was the thing going that, crazy like adrenaline all the time wanting to come in you know what was the thing that you really struggled with from a perspective of, of coping with that rob of the tra- well, of, of I, the of flipping the six hour cycling to the six hour yep. studying or being sedentary i think i'd probably become addiction's too strong a word but i i'd become accustomed to the stimulation and the joy in my body of being fit and exercising that much. I mean, road cycling is quite a little bit extreme in the sense that you're doing six hours of exercise every day. It's a, it's a bit, it's a bit in the extreme. Even in elite sport, a lot of sports don't involve that kind of exertion for that many hours on end. But I was finding the, you know, I was it was like I was always looking for another adrenaline hit to keep things going along with the day at university or the or the monotony of a job where it's quite mundane in comparison to the stimulation experience of always having a, a scanning system running in your brain looking in on the road surface and, and trying to chase the next rider down or get to the end of the next hill summit it's a very stimulating experience once you're up, the, up at the elite level of the sport so you can imagine, I mean, the analogy that used to make me laugh was I'd be sitting in a, in a uni lecture and I'd think, wow, this is very different to descending the Alps at 100 k's an hour with 200 friends <laughs> and being elbow to elbow with these guys. You know, it's almost like I'm going from life-threatening ex- moment-to-moment experiences. You go around the bed and all of a sudden you're in a dark Swiss tunnel with no internal lighting and all you can see is all the spokes of the wheels Glinking in the team car headlights, just for twelve seconds, your life was, in, you know, in everyone else's hands. I was like, shit, and then, then I just suddenly time warp. I'm going through a wormhole. I'm sitting in a uni lecture, and it's the fourth one of the day. I'm in the fourth hour of just sitting, listening, and using, you know, audio brain skills, not physical exertion skills, and 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 dexterity and hand bike handling skills. It's just a very strong contrast of abilities going on but i loved it i love that james bond thing where i want to have the ability to go and ride fast around the block at 50 k's now i want to be able to sit and take notes and understand the concepts in the uni class but the sheer volume of time the, the reciprocal sort of six hours of exercise one hour of you know writing messages or something in the pro lifestyle to six hours of sitting in lectures and one hour of gym work you know i found myself I bought a set of inline skates. I'd skate to uni. I'd try and substitute another hour in the gym. I'd try and do a swim in the pool for an hour after the lectures were over. There's no way I was ever going to get the six hours of exercise. But I think I was looking for the adrenaline hit. And what happened was I thought, this is crazy. I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get that calmness back, which I realised I must have been getting from the sport lifestyle. This sort of, uh, even though there was the monotony in there, it was it was very calming to have that piece of work physical work done the body just got good at it and so i started to meditate to to bring the mental calm back in it was very very helpful and what that did though meditating created a very strong sense of objectivity i'd have to call it 
you know, stepping away from the, the game of life, if you like, and seeing things for how they really are. And then you realise how distorted life can be as a professional athlete. It's quite unusual. In fact, I'd say without wanting to risk uh, my reputation that most elite athletes at the top level aren't normal at all, you know, not normal people. So uh, I was trying to do literally, as you say, go from this unusual person that's made some big gains in the sporting arena and try and co- transition or convert myself to normal. It's not not a not an easy thing to do. There's going to be you're going to have to try and fill some things in there, even physiologically. There was adrenaline highs disappearing with the sp- stopping the sport and and nutritional changes with trying to change the way that I eat. So I'm not consuming the same calories as if I just did 200 kilometres. I I don't need a third of that anymore. So it's there's this discipline and the, the, the skills that had to help me through that were the ones that you would typically expect from sports people going to normal life, which is high high focus, high discipline, um, routines, goal setting, you know, the agility of being determined to see things to their end, converting that to just perseverance in a different area, which th- that's tough, you, you, but the core skill is in there. And so the, the problem probably comes back to more to finding the goal and being able to set a goal. And I mean, I saw Simon Gerrans recently finish his professional career, a very good professional career, very filled with big highlights. And only in the last two years he's come out of that and he's uh, quickly manoeuvred and didn't do it overnight. He, he was developing the, the plan from years ago, but he's manoeuvred himself into a finance industry position and he's quick. He's been very quick to set goals and, and get a clear understanding of the ladder. These are these are the things from sport, you know, understanding, looking ahead and seeing what's required to get up that ladder, that the progressive sort of structure to things. So, what's come across for me very strongly in my passion for mental health is there's these structural similarities to the way you think and the need for proportionate time spent in the way you think. Whereas we in the sport. It was the proportions of, of focus were in the intensity of the physical output. And I'm saying I can see a transitional commonality there with the time I spend in the mental or mindsets, in the various mindsets. And meditation is a great example of the calm, just right along, low-level endurance mindset. I mean, too many people get too, as you would know, with work stress, too wound up, too much time trying to hit deadlines. It's difficult, very difficult. And I know that recently I heard some problems within the uh, emergency health sector with, you know, paramedics, as an example, having a lot of work stress associated with trying. I mean, imagine that the strains on having lives and life and death experiences too often is that they need to get better balance with how many hours they spend at trauma scenes and how many hours they spend it may be an administration or less less challenging environments to keep that balance, which is a very mental health-related thing. And I know that it's a very expensive problem if you have people in the workforce dropping out and having days off, or we call it mental health stress leave or whatever, because they've ended up becoming too stressed. So I, I see there's a very big correlation going on there, and I've just brought across the, the proportionate distributions of training intensities as the framework to using it in mental health and well-being and it's it's so timely that message and i think you mentioned earlier about the fact that a lot of professional athletes aren't normal people and 
We mean that we mean that in the we mean that in the nicest possible way though because they don't live normal lives. They don't live a nine to five life, you know, pre-COVID and I, you know, it's sort of or BC and AC, you know, before COVID and after COVID, whenever after COVID happens happens to be. And the and the thing is is that the you know if you're a professional cricketer, for example, you are spending nine months of the year living in hotels, living overseas, moving around the country when you're playing in the domestic season, yeah, playing travel. cricket. You're just moving oh. around. And so you mentioned before about, you know, you found it very tough to adjust going from six hours a day riding to six hours a day in a university lecture. Now, if you think about the things that from a transition perspective, the majority of athletes, regardless of how well they've prepared themselves for the next component of the career once again it's also depends a little bit i think on on the sporting discipline that they're really good at if you're a cricketer and you're a batsman and you have a tough run of outs you're probably sitting on your backside doing a lot of thinking while you're watching your teammates scoring runs but if you oh, th- yeah. anyway, as right. we get closer to winding this conversation up which has just been fascinating rob talk a little bit about the lessons that you would would want to impart on an athlete about transition and, and getting prepared for what's next whilst they're still actually in the sport that they're particularly good at? Well, it's maybe it's more common these days. I'm sure it's better and better every year now. But, you know, the maintenance of this, this model that I was saying before about the wheel with all the spokes in it, it's, and I spent a bit of time trying to do this with athletes in the Sydney Games period, looking at their lives and how much time is spent or maybe not even when you're coming up to a big event like the Olympics is you haven't got the time anymore to spend on investing in other parts of your life but so it's more about getting it organized a little bit ahead of time so it's planning thinking about setting up routines and the lifestyle and for me that was a major change with moving from being based in Canberra at the Australian Sports Commission Australian Institute of Sport to being in a decentralised, it's become a big theme. I would tell, ask the athlete, how important is it for you that you stay in your environment, your own home environment, and adapt the training plans? You know, we talk about doing correspondence studies. It's a little bit like doing correspondence sports training so that you can keep some of that support network around the athlete, tapping back into that joy factor that I really am, I suppose, that I referred to before. We don't want to change too much if we can avoid it. So how much of this can happen without displacing the person's whole life to get it done? So maybe we can keep a lot of it in play. Might mean literally being more days of the year at home. You might That might mean you can keep the girlfriend. It might mean that you can have more occasional visits to the family. It might mean you can keep the little job on Fridays and Saturdays going on as well. So decentralisation was a massive thing in the 90s when when this came in, where institute programs popped up all over Australia. So I'm quite sure that's a more common element now that's seen around. And and with sports like, you know, we used to look at the footy players, Ed, and think, wow, I'd love it to be, I I want that. You know, I want to be in my home city. My sport is popular and big in my home city, so I don't have to go to France and be so displaced to actually achieve these things. And the footy players were a little bit of a, like a role model ideal to be able to do that. So I'm taking that idea and sitting with the person and saying, what what things could you possibly achieve with this without removing yourself out of your comfort? I mean, it sounds like I'm saying don't leave your comfort zone. There's, there's, good, there's good 
reasons to get out of your comfort zone and get strong with that too. But we want to, this is the balance thing. You want to be able to achieve your, your sport in foreign places where you're, you really have to be um, internally focused or internal have good internal locus of control that to jump off a plane in Hawaii and be able to reproduce the skills and the and the focus and the and the delivery of your sport discipline in a foreign place you've never been before. That's a thing, it is. But then there's the whole I'm talking about the whole lifestyle generally. Because when you add it up over years, that as you mentioned earlier, that travel thing, that killed me. Living out of a suitcase, a different hotel every night not being able to establish relationships in any city for very long because they're gone again in a week, that put a lot of strain on me. So it's, it's the type of person. And, I, and you said it before, people, some of the elite athletes aren't the normal people in our community, but a lot of them are. A lot of them are quite normal. And they're, you know, and for me, it was the decentralising displacement of pro cycling all over the place was too disruptive. For some people, it's, it's that they're better at it. They've got a better sense of self than happy to move around. So I'd be getting the athlete to look at those aspects of themselves and see what matters most for them in their lifestyle. What figure out what get, get makes them tick, and then try to try to fit the sporting lifestyle to their personality a little bit more. I think this was largely overlooked when I was in my amateur years, and we just took the people that were good at their sport and put them in the program wherever it was, and they had to figure that out. That was brutal in a way. In some ways, it was quite brutal. And the other thing that came in in the 90s, late 90s, was that you might remember the talent ID scheme for schools, yep. finding kids in schools. This was a big thing. A lot of research was done on this. Going into a school, running a series of tests, picking the, the gems out of the school class, if you like, and saying, you're going to be a good rower, you're going to be a gymnast, you're going to be a swimmer. You know, the trick came with that, not to take the person out of their whole support structured network and chuck them into a new thing altogether and expect it to work. You've got to kind of look after the organism in its in its habitat. Yeah. There it is in one sentence. I could have just answered your question in one sentence. Would have been a, would have been a very short podcast and not not particularly entertaining, mate. Now, it's two, two quick things just to wrap up and I'll get to the last question, which I ask every guest in a second, which you've sort of covered off a little bit already, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But the one thing that is really fascinating to me is this whole issue of resource allocation and, you know, essentially where do you concentrate the various hours of your life in the pursuit mm. of certain things, whether it's professional, whether it's personal, uh, ensuring that, you know, you're building strong relationships with those that are close to you, finding meaning in your work and ensuring that you can do all of that, if you like, within the boundaries within which you have to work. But the thing that is always interesting to me from someone who's never been a professional athlete or an elite athlete is the fact that there is a performance aspect that you will do day in, day out. Now, you can go for a ride when you're training and you might ride from Melbourne to Frankston and back, what's that, 90 k's, and it's going to take you three and a half hours or whatever, whatever however long it takes. And yeah. the next day you can do that again and you can time yourself and so you give yourself an understanding of how you're progressing. In a job when you're sitting down on your backside whether it's doing what I do from a finance perspective or whether you're a lawyer or, or, or whatever, often it takes a fair while to understand whether you're moving forward and progressing because you don't have someone there with a stopwatch, you don't have someone there with a scorecard day in, day out. And I think that's quite a fascinating area, which we unfortunately we don't have time to get into about this whole issue of transition to life after sport. But Rob, to wrap things up, and you've been very, very 
kind with your time. The final question I ask every athlete that I speak to here is the same question. Tell me, what would you tell your 20-year-old self if you knew then what you know now about your journey through sport and the transition to life after sport? Oh, well, the simple answer is it's not black and white. There's all these other colours in between lying down and going flat out. I do see this a lot with up-and-coming people in sport and people just in the general community trying to get fit in a hurry. Everyone's in a great big hurry. I want to be this good tomorrow. Uh, The interesting thing about it is it's not just that there are other colours in there, it's that all the colours contribute. All the different shades do contribute to making the top colour better. So it's it's sort of like tell myself, hey, those other disciplines, those other levels of growing or learning are all going to contribute to making that top level that you just seem overly focused on being really good at brighter. That would be the lesson I would have given myself looking back 30 years. And I guess I can use the same uh, model for surviving the transition too, that the structure of things is what's similar. Uh, I thought wrongly, oh, this is a whole new, completely unrelated realm that I've got no skill in, this is terrifying or this, how am I going to do it? But it's actually got some structural similarity, as you just pointed out. And that's why I use the example of Simon Gerrans. What he did was dig down and find out how the infrastructure works and what the ladder looks like very quickly at the very beginning. He wanted to know who's above who in the hierarchy, what do you got to do to attain this? And He just applied the progressive fitness model of road cycling, which is a very long ladder, to the workforce, workplace, and, and in that industry, and, this, and he just found out about it. So he made himself aware, and I think oh, that would have been a great thing for me to appreciate better when I tried to come across from sport to normal life. There is a ladder. There's a ladder in every realm. Look for the ladder, and if you can get a bit of a grasp on the ladder and what it looks like and where you are on it, the whole thing becomes fun, right? And that's what we want. That's what we want for everyone is to enjoy what you're doing because that's what the motivational juice is and the get up every morning and the feel good about yourself and the mental health is better all around. Yeah, yeah, ha, ha, we're all good. <laughs> that is, that's my secret tip. <laughs> Rob Crow, that's a brilliant way to finish. Thanks so much for joining us. Enjoy your weekend. Let's look forward to getting out of COVID. I might even see whether you'd be prepared to take me for a ride. But mate, Oh, yeah, good. Once again, thanks so much and uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Rob. Good on you, Ed. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'd love to know what you think, so please email me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.